<clears throat> Turn with me to 1 Peter 5 to begin with. This is our first week in a new series, Raising Dry Bones. And this morning's message is Riding the Ship, week one. Matthew, turn to the next. How many of you recall this unbelievable picture from January 2012? That would be the Costa Concordia, an Italian cruise ship. At 2145 hours on January 13, 2012, in calm seas, the ship's captain struck a rock just off the eastern shore of Isola del Giglio, and it tore a 160-foot gash in the ship's hull, flooded the ship, cutting power and crippling the ship. And as water flooded in and it listed, she drifted back towards the island and grounded near shore rolling onto her starboard side. And by 1 a.m., just three hours later, the ship lay almost flat on her side with still between 700 and 1,000 people on board, minus the captain who abandoned the ship. <coughs> the Concordia's loss was a landmark in naval history for many reasons, but for one, it was the largest salvage operation in maritime history. It was a monumental task to salvage it. They did it for fear of severe environmental contamination because of uh, so much fuel that was on board and other things. They were afraid that it would severely damage the environment. It cost three times as much to salvage it as it did to build it, and it took two and a half years to salvage it. And the most delicate phase of the recovery operation was actually this, getting the ship upright. To get the ship upright took a year and eight months. Now I want you to imagine for a moment, and I'll pick on Noah. Now I want to imagine for a moment. Now let's not pick on Noah, because Will's the engineer in the room. Let's pick on Will. <laughs> he just got a stellar B in Calculus 4, a.k.a. DPQ. It might be Calculus 5, I don't know. It's way beyond what I can think of. But anyway, Will, you're tasked to upright that ship. Now, I don't know about y'all, but here's what I would have said. Bring in the TNT. Forget the environment. Let's just blow this thing up. I mean, what a monumental, seemingly impossible task. Amen? I'm hoping you already see the spiritual imagery that I'm trying to go with. That the Concordia is an apropos image of many local churches. It's severely listed in danger of sinking. Right in the ship seems a monumental, almost impossible Task, some might just say bring in the TNT and start over. In fact, in the meeting Jimmy and I had, Larry said, some people, that's their idea. Don't even revitalize, just shut it down and replant. So where in the world do you begin? Well, in biblical church revitalization, Solutions for Dying and Divided Churches, Brian Croft notes five key biblical areas that consistently mark the core issues of most churches that have to be addressed to experience Ezekiel 37, dead bones coming alive. I've added one to make it six. Six areas that Crossway must address if we want to right the ship. Those are headship, leadership, membership, partnership, worship, and stewardship. I hope you get the little play on words. <laughs> we're going to examine two a week over the next three weeks. This morning we're going to look at headship and leadership. So we're not going to stand, we're going to just, uh, as we come to each section, we're going to look at headship first and then leadership as we come to each section. We'll read a passage of scripture and then go from there. So let's look at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's plenty in front of you in the pew. Peter writes, So I exert, exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's open with some prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. 
Father, we just thank you so much for Kayla, and Father, we pray your continued blessing upon her life. Thank you, Father, for all that she has meant, not only to her family, but her Crossway family here. And so, Father, we celebrate her today, but Father, we come most importantly to celebrate you and to celebrate Christ and what he has done in our life. And Father, with his blood that he bought this church, and so we exalt him today. And Father, we ask that you would pour your Holy Spirit out upon this place now. You would give us ears to hear and eyes to see minds and hearts that father would follow you and father that would be uh, willing to do what we need to do to experience revitalization in our own life and in our corporate life father we ask that you would bless this time of preaching now in jesus name i pray amen, amen. so we'll look at first at headship the first and most important of the six areas crucial for any church that wants to navigate the revitalization process well is headship or authority it answers this question, who's in charge? Dr. Rogers said anything with no head is dead and anything with two heads is a freak. There's a lot of churches that are freaks because they ain't got a head or they got more than two heads. One gentleman said there can be only one captain to a ship. The problem in many churches is that we got too many chiefs and not enough Indians. Let me be crystal clear what is the question before us when I say who's in charge. I ain't asking who the bylaws say is in charge. I ain't asking who the Big Hatchie or the Tennessee Baptist or the Southern Baptist Convention says is in charge because first I don't care who they say is in charge. I care what God says about who's in charge. And I ain't asking who moderates the business meetings or who's the head deacon. <coughs> Or who's the longest living church member? Or who's the biggest giver? What I'm asking is this. Three things to think about and chew on for a second. Who has the greatest influence at Crossway? You don't have to answer. Just chew on it. Who has the greatest influence in the church? Number two, who do church members go to when decisions need to be made. But then ultimately, number three, who do church members actually listen to the most? Because they might go to one person and then they might listen to another. And here is a point of application. It may hurt us to think about this, but I think if we answer that question honestly, I'm not so sure Crossway answers those questions in the biblical affirmative. We must determine where the authority in our church really lies. Only then can we compare our answer to Scripture's answer. And Scripture is clear, especially here in 1 Peter 5, about who is in charge. When we answer this question about headship and authority, Who's in charge at Crossway? It ought to be, even though it's the church answer, it ought to be Jesus Christ. Amen. I've shared with y'all before that whenever I took the position here at Crossway, I had many people say, well, I heard you got yourself a church. No, I did not. I did not bleed and die for Crossway Baptist Church. And after I'm long gone and dead, Jesus is still going to be ruling over every local congregation, whether I'm part of it or not. It's his church. Peter calls him the chief shepherd. Matthew records him as saying all authority has been given him. And that means crossway. Peter here in this chapter is giving us God's organizational blueprint for every church. And then he's going to give us some exhortations to follow that blueprint. Everybody, from the pulpit to the nursery. And so we're going to look at this first and most important question, who's in charge? So we're going to look first at the biblical organization, and then the biblical exhortation that Peter gives us. First, the biblical organization. If you read through this, look again here as we read through this. There's four groups of people that jump out at us. Remember what I've told you. Look at words and circle them and see where you see things repeating. The first group of people that you see that jumps out is God. We read the flock of God. As God would have you. For God opposes the proud. So we see God. 
Second, we see Jesus. Now, we're going to get to that in a minute. They're not separate, but they do have different roles. So second is Jesus. The sufferings of Christ, the chief shepherd. Third is the elders. He says the elders, as God would have you, elders, when the chief shepherd appears, you, elders, will receive. And then later again, the elders. And then fourth is the church. The elders among you, the church. The flock of God is the church. Examples to the flock. Again, the flock is the church. You who are younger, that's talking about Noah. That's talking about Matthew. That's talking about Kayla. That's talking about Braden. Clothe yourselves, all of you. That's every single one of us. And so we see four groups of people, God, Jesus, elders, and church. And Peter puts those in that order. And just as the head of a family is the husband, not just because he has XY chromosomes or he's any more special, that's just God's design. And as the husband is to line himself up under Jesus and then the wife line herself up under the husband and the kids line themselves up under all of them, it's the same blueprint in the church. There's God and then Jesus and then there's the elders and then there is the congregation. And each is to line themselves up under the other. So first let's look at God. All authority begins and ends with the Creator of the universe and all that is within it. He is all-wise and all-knowing. You may think that you're pretty smart, but I guarantee you the amount of knowledge that you have compared to that of God is but a thimbleful in the ocean. All these atheists who think they know more than God and exalt themselves over to God to say there cannot be a God out there. Well, how much knowledge do you think you possess? out of an ocean full of knowledge in the whole universe. A thimble full? Well, wouldn't you be really silly to say if all I have is this, that somewhere out there in the ocean may be God that you, don't, that you claim doesn't exist. God has all the knowledge that is needed to run His church. We don't. God the Father rules on high and He answers to no one. The psalmist says that He sits in the heavens and He does what? He pleases. And so it's ultimately His pleasure whatever happens inside the church to grow it or whatever. He's the supreme authority and only ruler in the universe. And all authority structures must begin and end with God. Your marriage must begin and end with God. Your family must begin and end with God. And the church must begin and end with God. And think about it. This has been a problem since the beginning of time. Go back to Genesis 3. What does the snake say? Did God really say that? Do you really think you're going to die? Don't put yourself underneath God. Put yourself over God. And then... What is the whole curse of the family? The whole curse of the family is this. Who wears the pants? That's an age-old joke. You know why it's an age-old joke? Because it is the curse that was given in Genesis 3.16. God tells the woman that your desire will be over your husband, but he will rule over you, and it's been chaos ever since. And so then Numbers, chapter 14. You got the church. And you know what they're saying? Well, now look, we ain't listening to Buffy and Jimmy. I mean, they done brought us out here in Egypt and they just want us to die. We'd rather be back there at the meat pots. Isn't that what they said? I mean, Moses, you and Aaron done brought us out here and we're sick and tired of this and so we're going to do what... We want to do, and so there's been chaos in the church ever since. And then you look at God's people, the leaders. Go through First and Second Kings as Marty and I and J-Rod have been reading through that and find how many good kings there were. The northern kingdom had zero out of 32 kings. 
You know why? Because they just said, I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care what God said. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said, My desire is that there be no divisions amongst y'all, but what I hear from the report down there at First Baptist Corinth is y'all are all fighting. And some of you say, Well, now I belong to Jimmy. And some of you say, Well, now I belong to Coach. And some of you say, well, now I belong to Buffy. He said, that's foolishness. Is Jesus divided? So, the first sin that plagues us is cosmic rebellion. We just are like naughty little kids in the nursery that want to punch each other and have the rattle ourselves and the bottle ourselves, and we want to throw God's instruction out the window. When it comes to church, same thing. We want to do just whatever we want to do, and we want the church to run like we want it to run, and we want it to be this nice little comfortable thing that never, like Kayla says, challenges us. Oh, that a church would do what she said and say, I don't know the details. Let's just do what God says. The second is Jesus. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11.3. I'm in no way not saying Jesus is God. If I asked any of our graduates, I would hope and pray when I, as the pastor said, and they've been under my tutelage and under Cassie's tutelage, and I said, who is Jesus? I would hope that they would say this, Jesus is God. There are many religions in this world, and that's the crux of the matter right there. Who's Jesus? He's God, period, point blank. 1 Corinthians 11.3 But I want you to understand, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Jesus is God. Amen? Amen. You know, when I say Jesus is God a while ago, y'all should all have been, Amen! Dick and I were watching Dr. Robert Jeffries this morning, I said, she didn't know he preaches it. I believe it's First Baptist uh, Church in Dallas. I think that may be right. I said, do you know that? Can you not tell that's a Baptist church? She said, no, how's that? I said, man, that dude's over there talking about, said when Jesus comes into your life, you've been set free. Amen. Amen. And sin don't have a hold on you no more. There should have been people jumping up and dancing in the aisle. You know what they're doing? You didn't hear nothing. I said, that's a Baptist church right there. Jesus is God. But inside the Godhead, even though there's equality, there's subordination. What did Jesus do when He was in the garden? He's pouring out His heart and His soul. He said, I don't want this cup. Can you blame Him? Would you want to drink the cup of God's wrath? I don't. What does He say? I don't want to do this, but not my will. Yours be done. He put Himself under the Father. So He's the Son of God. He's the preeminent one, the sufficient one, the chief shepherd, our great high priest, the holy one that's got all authority. He rules on behalf of the Father and that includes His bride, the church, and therefore He has the right to give them the authority to whatever leaders He puts into the church and we, because He reigns supreme, then can bow to the leadership He's entrusted with the task. Alright, so that's God. Jesus next is God's Word. The person and work of Jesus and His authority are known and revealed through His perfect, inerrant, infallible Word, the B-I-B-L-E. The best textbook that Kayla's going to have over the next four years is not going to be family psychology. It ain't going to be what Sigmund Freud wrote. It ain't going to be about whatever the latest guru says about whether you ought to spank a kid or not spank a kid. The greatest book she's going to read over the next four years is the basic instructions before leaving earth, which is the Bible. And can I tell you as a physician, we need more Christian people involved in counseling. Because you get folks going off, even as Christian folks, to some counselor and they're going to give them some harebrained, crazy ideas that ain't got nothing to do with Scripture. So God's Word, me, Jimmy, we are equipped to shepherd you through God's Word. God's Word is living and active, cutting to the marrow, 
discerning the heart of God's people. We don't need any other instrument. That's the only scalpel Jimmy and I need is God's Word to accomplish what we need to. And as Patty mentioned this morning uh, in Sunday school, it never returns void. I don't have to worry about if I get up here and preach God's Word that it's not going to accomplish what it needs. Now if I get up here and give you all pop psychology and some sugar-coated preaching, it may or may not accomplish what it needs to do. But if I come up here and we give you God's Word, then all i got to do is let God handle the rest. Amen? And then God's breathed out the instructions that we need for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And so we cannot make enough of Jesus nor His Word, can we? Alright, so there's God, Jesus, God's Word, and then elders. Read through your Bible, read through the history of the church. One thing is as plain as the nose on your face. When God does the work amongst His people, you know what He does? He raises up leaders. Always to oversee the work and further it. Look at Nehemiah. And whenever we see progress among God's people, you can bet your bottom dollar that what has happened is there's been an understanding of and development of biblical leadership. Yet in discussing this, there's probably no area that stirs up more emotion and gets more people apprehensive than this. I'm going to give us three words that show us the response that people have to you saying, this is the organization that God has given. God, Jesus, His Word, and now your pastors, your elders. The first word is conflict. Authority and submission, especially in the good old U.S. of A, are dirty words, aren't they? Preach submission. Preach Ephesians 5 like it should be preached at a wedding. See how many people won't come up and slap you afterwards. As soon as folks hear those words, it's immediate resistance. It'd be like Kayla trying to baptize a cat. That cat is not going to like that baptized. You try to tell a church member, now you need to line yourself up under your pastors, under your elders, and you know what? It's like trying to dunk a cat in water. Since the fall, Satan has smuggled into the church the sins of independence, disobedience, and rebellion. The solution is simply this, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit to fill all of us and we'll all be of one accord. We won't have to worry about anything else. So, first off, this idea creates conflict. Second is it creates confusion. Have you not read... I mean, maybe people just really honestly haven't dug into the Scriptures to find answers to these questions. Who's in charge? And then as we look at in a minute, whom do I follow? I mean, think about it. These kind of questions, as I put in my notes, are the fodder of insomniacs. I mean, very few Christians wake up on Saturday morning and go, well now, I wonder what I'm going to read today. Kind of like Leviticus. Hmm. What Christian wakes up on Saturday morning going, I think I need a good old dose of Leviticus today. (laughs) Who wakes up and says, I really need a good dose of biblical submission? Exactly. See, it's a Baptist church. There was nothing anybody said. Nobody said anything. Nobody's sitting around reading that. And so you know what the problem is? Then we don't know. And then this is even worse. Then when we as leaders try to put that into place, people buck up against it like trying to put somebody on a bull. You know why they buck up against it? Because it's so foreign to them. They go, now look, I've been a Christian for 52.3 years and I ain't never seen nothing done like that. I don't care if you ain't never seen it done like that before if it ain't biblical. That don't mean we shouldn't make it back us. Amen? Amen. A lot of times we just don't know and so the solution to that is to become archaeologists and dig in and mine the truth out of Scripture and see what the Scripture says. Not what the Baptist bylaws say. Alright, so we could have conflict, we could have confusion, we could have contentment. That's those that will just come to the Word of God and say, look, I don't exactly like this, but you know what? I'm going to be content with it and I'm going to submit to it. Ezekiel 3.3 If you read there, it says that he took God's Word and he ate it. And it was as honey to him. 
You see, there's some people it comes to the Word of God and you know what they want to do? They want to debate it. They want to negate it. They want to abrogate it. But God says you need to just have ate it. I heard Alistair Begg say this week, he said, y'all ever heard this? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. He said, we need to knock out the middle. God said it, that settles it. I don't care if you believe it or not. Alright, next is the church. There's a lot of forms of church government existence across our planet that I venture to say really aren't biblical. Now the biblical evidence that the church should govern itself and have some degree of authority that there should be a system of checks and balances is that of church discipline. The authority to discipline people in the church, the authority to excommunicate them out of the church. So I believe the best biblical model is this, a plurality of elders under the singularity of the rule of Christ with the modality of checks and balances. Did you get that? Plurality under the singularity, but with a modality of checks and balances, as we'll look at, because there's some ecclesiastical monsters that exist in our churches that we need to slay. Let me give you these three, at least three of these ecclesiastical monsters. The first is democracy. The church is not a democracy. But yet, that's what we have made it. By and large, I guarantee you, every Baptist church, it's a democracy. And whatever is the popular vote, we don't even go by electoral college. It's popular vote, whatever is the popular vote, I don't care if all the leaders, if 100% of the leaders are on board that we're going this way, and the popular vote says, no, we're going that way, we go that way. And you know when the leaders get to stay in office, as long as they do what the majority wants. And the moment that they don't do what the majority wants, or the moment that they don't do what keeps the majority happy, and the sheep nice and pleasant, then they're O-U-T, out. And what we think is, well, we'll just bring in the latest and greatest young gun and he'll lead the church and then, you know what, he'll do what we want to do and then he gets there and he realizes he wants to go this way and the church still wants to go that way and then he's gone. Then they bring in the next one. And it's a revolving door. But the church is not a democracy. It is not God's will that everyone in the church would run everything. And it is not God's will that someone would run something. It is God's will that a few would be entrusted to oversee for the chief shepherd. So first off, it's not a democracy. That's one ecclesiastical monster. The second is autocracy. It's not an autocracy. This is not Buffy Cook's church. There is no pastor, no bishop, no church member, no deacon, no pope that has singularity of rule. Scripture shows singular, not singularity, but plurality. Paul said when he went amongst the churches, he appointed elders. Look at what Peter said here at the beginning. I exhort the elders amongst you. It's not one person, it's a group of people. Alright, third is dictatorship. The church ain't a dictatorship. You're not here just to have blind servitude to do whatever Buffy or whatever Jimmy or whatever Marty wants. So we reject democracy, autocracy, and dictatorship. So what is it? Again, some would be responsible for the leadership. All would be responsible to the leadership of Christ. And we would all like one another to be accountable one to another. Alright, so that's the organization. We're going to look quickly at the exhortation. Look at what First Peter says is the elder's role. He says there in verse 2, shepherd the flock. That is, feed and protect. My job and Jimmy's job is to feed and protect y'all. To feed means to lead you into the green pastures of God's Word that you might feed yourselves. Have you ever seen a shepherd out there picking up grass and shoving it down the sheep's throat? But yet you see people all the time say, well, I'm not going back to that church. Well, why aren't you going back there? Well, that pastor wasn't feeding me. Well, I didn't know it was his job to take the baby food out and cram it down your gullet. 
It's your job to learn how to feed yourself. It's my job to come in here and give you one meal a week. And if you try to survive on one meal a week medically, you're going to be in Disasterville. You try to survive on one meal a week spiritually, you're going to be in Disasterville. But that's what a lot of people do. Second, we protect. I've told you, I've got a lot of scars. I wish y'all could see some of them. A lot of scars over the last five years from protecting y'all. Protecting you from invaders, false teachers, from yourselves, and disciplined people, from dangerous animals, a.k.a. Satan, from sickness, sometimes we've needed to anoint you, remove some thorns, as Patty says, maybe break a few legs and hold you close beside for a little bit. <laughs> and then look at our readiness. Jimmy and I should do this, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And let me tell you, first off, pastors deserve to get paid. That's biblical. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, 1 Corinthians 9, 9 to 12. But money should never be mine nor Jimmy's primary motivation. And then it says not domineering, but being examples, taking on that example of Jesus. And when we do that, we don't do this for a reward, but we know that there is a reward coming, the unfading crown of glory. And then look at everybody else's responsibility. Be subject to the elders. Enclose yourselves with humility for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So a little bit of quick application on this. First, recognition. Authority matters. Who's in charge at Crossway? It matters. Who's in charge? Second is evaluation. We've got to check our authority structures and see whether someone or some group in the church has authority that's unwarranted from Scripture. And then recuperation. We've got to recover the biblical model and structure of authority. And then fourth, exaltation. Christ is the chief shepherd. We need to get Him up. Not just in the sermons, but in our daily walk as a church. Amen. And fifth, submission. If someone or someones are exalting themselves over Christ or over Christ's blueprint at Crossway, let me just go on and put this out there, but it is sin. Mm -hmm. Because James 5.17 says that he who knows what to do that is right and does not do it, it is sin. Six is reproduction. Caleb, Noah, Will, do y'all want to experience the abundant life? Or do you want your life to be a disaster? You want the abundant life? Then reproduce this blueprint in your life and everything that you do in your marriage, in your life, in your career, Especially God's Word. As we've been reading, Marty, over the last couple days, Psalm 119, I'm blown away over and over. I love your law. I love your Word. I love your commandments. I fear your commandments. I keep them over and over. He's just eating up God's Word. We need to be sure all of us are doing that, especially our young people. So that's headship, and then we're going to look quickly at leadership. That answers this question. Whom do I follow? In this book, Brian Croft talks about he goes to a church to help them revitalize and his first thing is to kind of see how their headship is going and he says what he quickly found out was that the person that was running the church was the church secretary and he comments, he said, she ran the church and everybody knew it. You see, we can move towards proper headship and not have proper leadership, and it'd be like stopping smoking but then quitting exercising. It really wouldn't do us a whole lot of good. Alright, so turn to 1 Timothy 3. We're going to look at some similar qualifications for pastors and deacons, elders and deacons and then some dissimilar functions and some thermonuclear instructions. Alright, let's look at 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, 
with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So look at a couple, some similar qualifications. Notice that uh, Paul repeatedly says must. These things are not optional. It's must. First is a blameless reputation. That word there with regards to the elder and the deacon means that no valid accusation of wrongdoing could be made against them. If you posted my name or Marty's name on Facebook and said, tell me anything that you can validly back up and substantiate that these guys have done that shows they do not have a blameless reputation. You know how many comments there ought to be on there? Zero. Or at least none that can be substantiated. And so what that entails is this, fleeing from evil. It means abstaining from all appearance of evil. I've said that repeatedly. That there are certain things that I don't do because it's not necessarily bad in and of itself, but it could be construed as being wrong. Amen. And so I have to abstain from all appearance of evil. I have to live above accusations, a consistent godly lifestyle, not in bondage to anything. That's why it says not a drunkard, not addicted to much wine. This does not entail perfectionism. I mean, honestly, there's no deacon and no elder that can really honestly meet all of these. Amen? Amen. So it's not about perfectionism. Second is, they have to be a good manager of their home. This phrase here, both with the elder and the deacon, the husband of one wife, has caused lots and lots and lots of uh, conflict within the church. It does not mean several things. What it means in the Greek literally is this, a one-woman man. One-woman man. There's various interpretations. Some say, well, that means single men are uh, excluded. Well, if that's the case, then Paul and Jesus are disqualified, and I don't think Jesus is disqualified from being the head of His church. Amen? Amen. Some say, well, that means polygamists can't be elders. Well, polygamists can't even be Christians. They can't even be church members, so they sure can't be in the pulpit. Amen? Amen. And third, it says widowers. Well, the Bible encourages remarriage after widowhood. Some say, well, it's about divorce. Well, hey, that ignores pre-conversion. Don't you think Paul violates verse 3? Do you think Paul was violent? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you know when that was? Pre-conversion. It also ignores that there are biblically, biblically permitted divorces. It also ignores the simple fact that there's a lot of folks that I know that have been married to one woman in their whole life and they ain't one woman men. Amen. And some of them are standing in pulpits. Again, it doesn't entail perfectionism. I mean, who's been able to manage his children perfectly and keep them wholly submissive? I haven't. I mean, I've tried. <laughs> Mike says, I have. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to have to get with you afterwards take some notes, man, because I've messed up on the first three and three-fourths. But what it does entail is faithfulness. I love what this one guy said. He said, a man who having contracted a monogamous marriage is faithful to his wedding vows. And it means fruitfulness. Because how he manages his house is how he will manage God's house. And then there's godly character that's given, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I wonder if that means that you can't get mad in kickball games. I guess I'm out of here. <laughs> Wiffle ball. Beat up little kids on the Basketball court. <laughs> uh, deacon, dignified. They hold the mystery of the faith. They've been tested. They're not double-tongued. They're not addicted to much wine. They're not greedy. They have to give evidence of a transformed life. And then spiritual maturity. 
They don't have idolatry. They're not a lover of money. Arrestus Brownson spoke of ministers who pay more attention to the fleece than to the flock. And I know some pastors like that, don't you, Jimmy? They're more worried about the fleecing of the flock than they are the flock. And y'all heard me say this before. Oz Guinness said if a man's drunk on wine, you throw him out of the church. If he's drunk on money, you make him a deacon. So there's no idolatry in his life. And then there's maturity, not a recent convert. And again, plurality. And then there's some dissimilar functions. Quickly is this. A elder teaches a deacon is well taught. The primary distinction is an elder is able to teach. Really what we have here at Crossway is we truly honestly have elders. Because either one of these gentlemen, and I know Coach has done it before, and Marty could, he would be very reserved to have to do it, but Marty could get up here and give a sermon. We have elders, really. Because we all are able to teach. There's a difference. Elders can teach. Deacons are well taught. And then elders oversee. Deacons are servants. The Greek word for deacon means dust kicker. And that's a picture of what a deacon is supposed to be doing. Kicking up dust. Because he's doing. And the elder is to be shepherding. It's hard to be preparing messages and praying for the church when you're having to do other things. Alright, finally is thermonuclear instructions. Why did I put that in there? Turn quickly with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We want to get close to closing up. Y'all remember me? Y'all heard me talk about the crazy cycle? Well, this is the opposite of the crazy cycle. This is the energizing cycle. You see, the crazy cycle is when my wife shows me disrespect, you know what I do? I withhold love. And you know what that makes her do? That makes her show me even less respect, which then makes me withhold even more love. And we jokingly say, buckle in, baby. Strap up, because we're getting on the crazy cycle and we're about to spin out of control. This is the energizing cycle. If my wife acts disrespectfully to me, you know what I do? Not hypocritically, but genuinely show her love. And that will energize. It will spin it. It will put energy into it. So look at Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In verse 17, here's a dirty word. Obey your leaders, an even dirtier one, and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So look at the threefold instruction to the church members. One, obey. That word actually in the Greek literally comes from the word faith to be persuaded. It's, in, it's obedience, but as a result of God's persuasion. So I would ask you, has God persuaded you that you are to be obedient to the leadership here at Crosswalk Baptist Church? Number two is submit. That means to yield, line yourself up under. Are you yielding to the leadership here at Crossway or are you fighting them tooth and nail? And third, remember your leaders. That word there, remember, means to be mindful of. To all, and it's always used in Scripture in connection to, you know what? Prayer. Miss Pam, to stop me and say, did you feel me praying for you this week? Look, I don't need you to bring me chocolate pies. Y'all know I'm on keto anyway. I just have to give it to somebody else. And I don't need y'all to bring me envelopes of money. And I don't need you to bring me tickets to UT versus Florida, although that would be nice, I, but it'd be heartbreaking because I'm probably going to watch them lose again this year. I don't need you to bring me a new commentary set. Jimmy doesn't need any of that either. Although if y'all want to bring any of that stuff to us, we'll be happy to take it. Jimmy says he'll take the envelopes of money in 10s and 20s, preferably. You know what we need? Your prayers. Are you praying daily for the leadership here at Crossway? Mm -hmm. Obey, submit, remember. Does that describe you? <coughs> now listen to my instruction. And Marty and coaches and Jimmy's. Keep. We are keeping watch over your souls. That is a monumental task. And it's hard to do 
when you're mopping floors and worried about this and if that got done and if this did or didn't get done or have we got this going? Who's going to be there at this event? And key. Second is give. We will have to give an account. Myself, Jimmy, Marty, Coach will one day stand before God and give a personal account for how we led Crossway. And I want to ask you, when we stand to give that account, will we say it was a blessing or a curse to lead you? Because of how stiff-necked you were. And then work. We're to do this with joy and not with groaning. We whistle while we work. Or do we groan while we work? You know the problem with sheep? They bite. Dr. Adrian Rogers, I heard him say that African-American pastor told him one time, he said, Adrian, he said, you know, I don't mind getting swallowed by a whale. It's getting nibbled to death by a menace. And that describes what a lot of churches do to their leaders as they nibble them to death. Here's the thermonuclear part of the instruction, that energizing cycle. When you understand that I'm keeping watch over your soul when Jimmy is, and that we're going to give an account and we are working for you, you know what you are? Fired up. Fired up to obey, submit, and remember us in your prayers. And when we see y'all obeying and submitting and remembering us in your prayers, we're fired up to keep, watch, and work for y'all. You see how that works? All right, in closing, Kyle, you got asked some pretty important questions earlier by Cassie. What would y'all say are some of life's most important questions? I'm going to give you a couple of them. It's been pretty serious, so I'm going to give you some comical ones. Will, what's the speed of dark? I mean, I know the speed of light, but do y'all know the speed of dark? That's a pretty important question. He probably actually does know it. He's thinking the black hole. And <laughs> Two, why are there Braille signs on drive through ATMs? Y'all ever wondered that? Yes. I don't want to be there whenever that's getting used. <laughs> After eating, the amphibians have to wait an hour before they can get out of the water. <laughs> Why isn't there mouse-flavored cat food? You ever wondered about that? Oh, that's <laughs> Maybe so they'll stop eating the cat food and go hunt the mice, which is why you got them. If a cow laughed, Noah, would milk come out of her nose? <laughs> Y'all ever wonder why there are interstate highways in Hawaii? Where are you going? <laughs> Hawaii! Where else are you going? Hawaii. Why is it when you transport something by car, it's called a shipment, and when you transport something by ship, it's called cargo? And I wonder if they're seeing eye humans for blind dogs. <laughs> And why does your nose run and your feet smell? And when your pet bird sees you reading the newspaper, does he wonder why you're sitting there looking at the carpet? <laughs> and I was like, man, I've got a month's worth of stuff to tell everybody at work. <laughs> I'm going to look on the podcast and we're like, why was this episode listened to 52 times? It was Noah writing down all of, all of those. Oh, man. But can I ask you seriously two of life's most important questions as a body of believers? <coughs> Who's in charge? And who am I going to follow? Who's in charge? Jesus. And who am I going to follow? The ones He put in charge, which is the elders. If we're going to maintain any hope of righting the ship and not having a disaster like the Costa Concordia, we've got to answer these questions in the biblical affirmative. And it's got to go from right thinking to right living. It's biblical. It must then become Baptist. And so to right the ship, we've got to ensure biblical headship and biblical leadership. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and thank you so much for this time you've given us, Father, just to gather together. 
And Father, just to have a great time in your house, Father, to laugh, and Father, even to cry over, Father, uh, just uh, Kayla graduating, what you've done in her life, and what you've done in our lives through her. And so, Father, we come today just praying for our church, and Father, for you to revitalize it, and Father, for it to first start with us understanding that the only person in this room in charge is Jesus Christ, and we all need to line ourselves up under Him. But then, Father, Jesus has given earthly people that He has entrusted with His church. And so, Father, who do we follow? We follow those that Jesus has entrusted through the biblical qualifications that they meet to carry out the functions of the church. And, Father, as we then do those instructions, we burn each other up for Christ and we energize one another, Father, to be a church that has experienced Ezekiel 37 and dry bones come to life. We pray as we come to this time of invitation that there's any decision that needs to be made for you, be it salvation or otherwise, Father, that you would just be working in the lives and hearts of those here this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. As far as invitation, twofold. First, if you're lost this morning, you need to get saved. Amen. Who's the captain of your ship, the captain of your salvation. Most folks in America, the captain of their salvation is me, myself, and I. And they think that they are good enough people and that they can do good enough stuff and that's going to roll their little boat right on into Heaven's Harbor. Can I tell you, only Jesus can safely steer your soul to God. You can't be good enough and you can't do good enough. That is a false gospel. It is a hidden reef that will leave you drowning in your own unrighteousness. So come receive Jesus' free gift of eternal life this morning. Come receive Him as Lord and Captain of your salvation. So if you don't know Jesus, you need to get saved. If you know the Lord this morning, you need to get straight. Is God, Jesus, God's Word, elders of the church, the blueprint of your life? Are you recognizing that? Are you reproducing it in your own home? Are you submitting to the leadership here at Crossway? Or are you usurping the leadership? And if you're a leader, are you living the qualifications and fulfilling the functions? And if you're a member, are you obeying, submitting, and remembering your leaders as we stand this morning and sing, listen to the Lord as He calls to you. Page 303, just as I am.